the circumcision of desire. It's hard to trace with any precision the moment when a new idea makes its first appearance on the human scene, especially one as amorphous as that of love. But love has a history. There's the contrast we find in Greek and then Christian thought between eros and agape, sexual desire, and a highly abstract love for humanity in general. There's the concept of chivalry that makes its appearance in the age of, of the Crusades, the code of conduct that prized gallantry and feats of bravery to win the heart of a lady. There's the romantic love that makes its appearance in the novels of Jane Austen. And there's the moment in Fiddler on the Roof where exposed by their children to the new ideas in pre-revolutionary Russia, Tevye turns to his wife Golda and the following conversation ensues. Do you love me? I'm your wife. I know, but do you love me? Do I love him? For 25 years, I've lived with him, fought with him, starved with him. 25 years, my bed is it. Shh. If that's not love, what is? Then you love me. I suppose I do. The inner history of humanity is in part the history of the idea of love. And at some stage, a new idea makes its appearance in biblical Israel. We can trace it best in a highly suggestive passage in a book, in the book of one of the great prophets of Israel, Hosea, Hosea. Hosea lived in the 8th century BCE. The kingdom had been divided since the death of Solomon. The northern kingdom in particular, where Hosea lived, had lapsed after a period of peace and prosperity into lawlessness, idolatry, and chaos. Between 747 and 732 BCE, there were no less than five kings, the result of a series of intrigues and bloody struggles for power. The people, too, had become lax. The prophet says, There is no faithfulness or kindness and no knowledge of God in the land. They're swearing, lying, killing, stealing, and committing adultery. They break all bounds, and murder follows murder. Like other prophets, Hosea knew that Israel's destiny depended on its sense of mission. Faithful to God, it was able to do extraordinary things, survive in the face of empires, and generate a society unique in the ancient world of the equal dignity of all, as fellow citizens, under the sovereignty of the creator of heaven and earth. Faithless, however, it was just one more minor power in the ancient East, whose chances of survival against larger political predators were minimal. What makes the Book of Hosea remarkable is the episode with which it begins. God tells the prophet to marry a prostitute and see what it feels like to have a love betrayed. Only then will Hosea have a glimpse into God's sense of betrayal by the people of Israel. He'd liberated them from slavery. He'd brought them into their land. And then God saw them forget the past, forsake the covenant, and worship strange gods. Yet he can't abandon them, despite the fact that they have abandoned him. In a powerful passage conveying the astonishing assertion that more than the Jewish people love God. God loves the Jewish people. Hosea represents the history of Israel as a love story between the faithful God and his often faithless people. The God is sometimes angry. He cannot but forgive. He will in the future take them on a kind of second honeymoon, and there they will renew their marriage vows. This is what Hosea says. 
Therefore I am now going to allure her. I will lead her into the desert and speak tenderly to her. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you in righteousness and justice, in love and compassion. I will betroth you in faithfulness, and you will know the Lord. It's this last sentence with its explicit comparison between the covenant and a marriage that we say, Jewish men say, when they put on the tefillin shall yad, the hand tefillin, winding its strap round the finger like a wedding ring. One verse in the midst of this prophecy deserves very close scrutiny. It contains two complex metaphors that have to be unraveled strand by strand. In that day, declares the Lord, you will be called Ishi, my husband. You will no longer call me Baali, my master. Now this is a double pun. Baal, in biblical Hebrew, meant a husband. But in a highly specific sense, namely master, owner, possessor, controller, it signaled physical, legal, and economic dominance. And of course, it was also the name of the Canaanite god, whose prophets Elijah challenged in the famous confrontation at Mount Carmel. Baal, often portrayed as a bull, was the god of the storm, who defeated Mot, the god of sterility and death. Baal was the rain that impregnated the earth and made it fertile. The religion of Baal is the worship of God as power. Hosea Contrast this kind of relationship with the other Hebrew word for husband, ish. And here he's recalling the words of the first man said to the first woman, Zotapam, this is now bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, isha, because she was taken, me'ish, from man. Here, the male-female relationship is predicated on something quite other than power and dominance, ownership and control. Man and woman confront one another in sameness and difference. Each is an image of the other, yet each is separate and distinct. The only relationship able to bind them together without the use of force is marriage as covenant, a bond of mutual loyalty and love in which each makes a pledge to the other to serve one another. Not only is this a radical way of reconceptualizing the relationship between man and woman, it also implies Hosea the way we should think of the relationship between human beings and God. God reaches out to us not as power, the storm, the thunder and the rain, but as love, and not as an abstract philosophical love, but a deep an abiding passion that survives all the disappointments and betrayals. Israel may not always behave lovingly toward God, says Hosea, but God loves Israel and will never cease to do so. How we relate to God affects how we relate to other people. That's Hosea's message and vice versa. How we relate to other people affects the way we think of God. Israel's political chaos in the 8th century BC was intimately connected to its religious waywardness. A society built on corruption and exploitation is one where might prevails over right, and that is not Judaism, but idolatry. It's Baal worship. Now we understand why the sign of the covenant is Brit Milah circumcision, 
the commandment given in the first of this week's parashiot Tazria. For faith to be more than the worship of power, it must affect the most intimate relationship between men and women. In a society founded on covenant, male-female relationships are built on something other and gentler than male dominance, masculine power, sexual desire, and the drive to own, control, and possess. A Baal must become an Ish. The alpha male must become the caring husband. Sex must be sanctified and tempered by mutual respect. The sexual drive must be circumcised and circumscribed so that it no longer ceases to possess and is instead contempt to love. There is therefore more than an accidental connection between monotheism and monogamy. Although biblical law does not command monogamy, it nonetheless depicts it as the normative state from the start of the human story. Adam and Eve, one man, one woman. Whenever in Genesis a patriarch marries more than one woman, there is tension and anguish. The commitment to one God is mirrored in the commitment to one person. Even the Hebrew word emunah, often translated as faith, in fact means faithfulness, fidelity, precisely the commitment you undertake when you make a marriage. Conversely, for the prophets, there's a connection between idolatry and adultery. That's how God describes Israel to Hosea. God married the Israelites, but they, in serving idols, acted the part of a promiscuous woman. The love of husband and wife, a love at once personal and moral, passionate and caring, is as close as we come to understanding God's love for us and our ideal love for him. When Hosea says, you will know the Lord, he doesn't mean knowledge in an abstract sense. He means the knowledge that is intimacy and relationship, the touch of two selves across the metaphysical abyss that separates one consciousness from another. That's the theme of Shi'ar Shirin, the Song of Songs, that deeply human yet deeply mystical expression of Eros, the love between humanity and God. It's also the meaning of one of the definitive sentences in Judaism. Vahavta et Hashem Elokecha, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and with all your strength. Judaism from the beginning made a connection between sexuality and violence on the one hand and marital faithfulness and social order on the other. Not by chance is marriage called kiddushin, sanctification. Like covenant itself, marriage is a pledge of loyalty between two parties, each recognizing the other's integrity, honoring their differences, even as they come together to bring new life into being. Marriage is to society what covenant is to religious faith, a decision to make love, not power, or wealth, or force majeure, the generative principle of life. Just as spirituality is the most intimate relationship between us and God, so sex is the most intimate relationship between us and another person. Circumcision is the eternal sign of Jewish faith because it unites the life of the soul with the passions of the body reminding us that both must be governed by humility, self-restraint, and love. Brit Milah helps transform the male from Baal to Ish,
from dominant partner to loving husband, just as God tells Hosea that this is what he seeks in his relationship with the people of the covenant. Circumcision turns biology into spirituality. The instinctive male urge to reproduce becomes instead a covenantal act of partnership and mutual affirmation. It was thus as decisive a turn in human civilization as Abrahamic monotheism itself. Both are about abandoning power as the basis of relationship and instead aligning ourselves with what Dante called the love that moves the sun and other stars. Circumcision is the physical expression of the faith that lives.